complex intelligentsia. This is the idea where you can hold on to two truths at the same time. Not truths, not truths that contradict each other. A can't be A and not A at the same time and in the same sense. But you can hold on to differing concepts. You're able to, to hold on to differing concepts, concepts uh, and it, it's not black or white. So today we've seen so far that Satan and worldliness is not the primary problem plaguing our church. Here's what that does not mean. That does not mean that Satan and worldliness are not problems. It would be a mistake for you to walk away from this class and say, we don't give any attention to teaching about Satan, or we don't give any attention to worldliness. Those things don't matter whatsoever. That, that would be a, a mistake, right? So we need, the word I want to introduce us to is nuance. Nuance. To have, to have a nuanced view is to not say black and white, this is the only thing that matters, this thing does not matter. But it's to give things a priority. This thing matters, this thing matters more. What I, wanna, what I want to encourage you is to not walk away from this class with such a clear black and white vision of, of the things we're talking about that, that you go out and you say worldliness is not a problem. Worldliness is driving people to hell. Satan, Satan is a big problem. What we want to say is these, these things are not the heart of the problem, right? Love to hear from some of you about uh, the, the last lecture, thoughts about how some of this stuff might influence us as we, as we go planting churches, as we grow Trinity Fellowship, by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, as we plant churches, as we do ministry, how might the fact that Satan is not our biggest problem and worldliness is not our biggest problem, how, how might that affect the way we teach and preach so far? Hmm? It's a question with a question mark on the end. How, how might the fact that Satan and worldliness, that those two things are not our man's biggest problem, how might that affect how we church plant? How might that affect how we preach and do ministry? I want your takeaways, in other words, so far. Sammy? Repeat the question. What is your takeaway so far? Observation. Thanks. You say that again? Okay, in the right position. So <clears throat> heresy, heresy is to believe or hold to something that will end you up in hell, right? What we're not saying about our brothers is that they're heretics necessarily. Some of them might be, uh, and, and you have to take that at a case-by-case -case basis. But what we are saying is that you can be sincere while being sincerely wrong, right? I think a lot of our, a lot of ministry workers are sincere, but because of the emphasis they've placed on something, they've become lopsided in their preaching, and they've become sincerely wrong. They're in error. That doesn't mean they're not Christians necessarily. It just means they're, they're preaching and living and leading into error. And what we find is that if you do that long enough, what you do is you end up assuming the gospel, and you end up losing the gospel, right? That's what we're endeavoring to protect by asking this question.
what is the greatest problem because the gospel is God's solution to that great problem. Let's get into our next lecture. The title of this lecture is that the problem is sin. In this lecture, I'm going to pause it. I'm going to put forth that sin is primary problem. The title of this lecture is The Problem is Sin. What is sin? Where did it come from? And why is it the greatest dilemma in the history of mankind? <coughs> Excuse me. At its core, sin is ultimately a failure to glorify, honor, and adore the one and only God for who and what he is with all that we are and all that we do. In the previous lecture, we saw that even if it were possible to rid ourselves of Satan and worldliness, we would still have this underlying issue of ungodliness for which we are guilty as active and voluntary participants. Sin, as we will soon see, also has its own components and its own categories. But before we can drop down into them, let's come up with a definition for sin. <coughs> a definition of sin. In his now world-famous systematic theology, Dr. Wayne Grudem defines sin as follows. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. According to this definition, sin is any violation of God's moral law, and it can be broken down into three categories. One is our acts, two, our attitudes, and three, our nature. Let's drop down into these three sections to discover if there's biblical warrant for this definition. Sin as an act. Sin as an act. <coughs> yes, sir. Sin is all, uh, what I said was sin is ultimately a failure to glorify, honor, and adore the one and only God for who and what he is with all that we are and do. And I think you'll see that to be the case. So that's not quite a definition. That's a, a broad kind of all-reaching capacity um, statement. But we're defining sin. We're taking Wayne Grudem's definition, which is sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God and act, attitude, or nature. So sin as an act, under this first sin category of acts, I would imagine that there would not be much pushback or disagreement. In the Ten Commandments, we are told what to do and what not to do. You shall have no other gods before me, Exodus 23 says. According to this command, to have any other gods is to break this law and thus to sin against God. One more example would be, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That's according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Under this law, to take the Lord's name in vain, that is to say, O oh my God, or O oh Jesus, or by Jesus' sin, in a non-reverential or non-honoring way, is to act is an act which makes one guilty of sin. This category of sin acts is the one that most Christians dwell on. Act, what you do and what you do not do. Often to the neglect of the other two categories of attitude and nature. Whenever our primary focus is on what we do and or do not do, we are emphasizing this first category of sin. In fact, I would say whether in their thinking or their teaching, Erroneously, we reduce sin in its entirety to merely the wrong actions we do. That's a, that's, a, that's a common problem in many churches, especially fundamentalist churches. Nevertheless, I think we can agree that the, the Bible very evidently articulates sin according to our acts. What we do or do not do in violation of what God has commanded. That's the first category. How about the second category? Is there biblical evidence for a category of attitudinal sin 
and our definition of sin. Let's look at the second category, sin as attitudinal, attitudinal sins. Again, by simply looking at the Ten Commandments, we quickly discover that God does look to the heart and command attitudinal obedience. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's, according to Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Under this command, God is prohibiting even the desire the desire for another's possessions, spouse, or anything. You haven't even acted upon it. He's prohibiting the desire of those things. To simply desire to have sexual relations, let's call those lustful imaginations, with someone other than your own spouse, or to covet the vehicle, or home, or health, or body of someone else, even if that desire is not acted upon, according to this verse, that is sin. It appears to me that our Lord placed great evidence on this second category. When we look in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders who were approved of by everyone, so far as their actions were concerned. And yet Jesus takes our conversation out of or beyond the level of their actions all the way down to the level of their hearts and their desires. This is what he declares. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. More concerned with the approval of man than that of God, the Pharisees' attitudes were an abomination to the Lord. What was going on inside was an abomination to the Lord. And, it isn't, and isn't it the attitudes of the heart that Christ placed so much emphasis on in the Sermon on the Mount? After all, we've coined those first, that first section of Matthew 5, the B attitudes. The B attitudes are to be a, are to be a description of the Christian, to what a Christian is supposed to be like. And in Matthew 5, 22, and in Matthew 5, 28, Jesus forbids sinful attitudes of anger and of lust. In fact, Christ boils all of God's commands down to attitudinal obedience. Matthew 22, 34 through 40 recounts just this. He says, but when the, it says, but, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. <clears throat> so Jesus says, Love from the heart for God and love for neighbor are the two greatest commandments. So what pleases God is not only merely doing the right thing, but also desiring the right thing from the secret place of our hearts. This leaves us with one final subcategory of sin, and that has to do with nature. Sin. Nature. To say we have a sinful nature is to say that sin is not merely what we do, nor just the attitudes of our heart which are opposed to God, but it is also our very nature. Yes, it's to say that our very nature is opposed to God. Let us be very clear here. When God created man, he did not create us with a sinful nature. He did not create us with a sinful nature. We were created perfect. But when man fell into sin, our nature fell also, and it became corrupted. It became sinful. This might, it might not, be a new concept for some, as it is often not focused on in many circles. Most circles do not focus on this third category of sinful nature. And yet, it is, in fact, not a new concept at all, and Christians have held to this doctrine since the early church. More importantly, it's biblical. 
In Ephesians 2.3, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And then look at this. He says, And were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The passions of the flesh, the desires of the body and mind, these are instinctual actions inherent from birth, directly correlating or stemming from our sinful nature. To be clear, we do not have a sinful nature as a result of sinning. We do not have a sinful nature as a result of sinning. You did not get a sinful nature the moment you first sinned. You and I do not get our sinful nature at the moment we first do something wrong. Rather, we sin because we have a sinful nature. Indeed, we are born with it. King David declared in Psalm 51:5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Otherwise put, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're not liars because we lie. We lie because we are liars. We're not thieves because we steal. We steal because we're thieves. At the beginning of, ch of the chapter, last lecture, at the beginning of this lecture, we said that at its core, sin is a failure to glorify God. In order to really grasp this, we have to go all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Adam and Eve at creation in the Garden of Eden. We need to look at the origin of sin. In Genesis chapter 1, after creating light and separating it from darkness, after creating the heavens and the earth, after creating the plants and the trees, and after creating all the animals, on the sixth day of creation, God crowned this new existence with his final and magnificent work, man. Then God said, according to Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. God created man, that is, male and female, in his own image. In kindness, he created man last of all, not only as the climax of all creation, but also out of care, so as to give man more than an abundance of all that would be needed, including oxygen, food, water, and etc., and then he entrusted man with dominion over creation. He was to be the kingly ruler, you could say, taking dominion over God, all that God had spoken into existence. We find this in Genesis 1.26. Man bearing God's own image was to serve as something of a mirror. He was to reflect the glory of God himself to the rest of creation. Now listen, that's no small honor, for no other created being had the privilege, no other created being shared the privilege of being an image bearer. Nothing else was bearing the image of God in creation. Only Adam and Eve were chiefly entrusted with this most sacred of missions. And of all that God had created, he held nothing back from these image bearers. Is that not remarkable? They could go wherever they wanted. They could eat whatever they wanted. Listen, God put a naked man and a naked woman in a garden together. They could make love wherever and whenever they wanted. We see this in Genesis 1, 28 through 30. Even though they were not divine, we have to say they were not gods, yet in a sense they were like miniature gods. They were like miniature gods reflecting the glory of the one and only true God. Don't get me wrong, there's a heresy floating around our city that say, states we are miniature gods. I'm not saying that. But they were, in essence, like miniature gods because they were told to rule all things. But even with God, there are certain things that he cannot do. 
for example, God cannot lie. We see this in Titus 1, 2, and Hebrews 6, 18. There's things God cannot do. And so just as the God they were meant to reflect, even they had one thing that they were not permitted to do, something they were not allowed to do. Only one thing was prohibited. There was only one thing that was off limits, and that was the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From this and only this tree, they were to refrain. For God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, Genesis 2.17. But the tempter comes, as he always comes, with perversions, with twistings, and with lies. He came twisting God's words and making him appear to be a harsh tyrant and a harsh lawgiver. The serpent says to Eve, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see that? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any, any tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1. Satan takes God's one, his one and only rule, and he makes it appear to be a harsh, all-encompassing, oppressive law to be applied to every tree in the garden. Did God say not to eat of any tree in the garden? Taking the one forbidden tree and making God out to be a dictator who forbids all forms of pleasure, Satan begins to corrupt God's good intentions. And then, yet again, he comes to Eve and he says, you will not surely die. For God himself knows. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, 4 through 5. The tempter has tempted her. How? He tempts her by appealing to her own inner desire to be like God. Now we must pause here and point out the sinfulness of sin. The tempter is tempting her with her own desire to be like God. But here's the thing. She was already like God. God. Was she not? There's a deep-seated problem here. The problem is this. She didn't just want to be like God. She wanted to be God. She was already like God. You will be like God. She should have said, I am like God. In effect, she wanted to replace him, didn't she? And so she ate. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate too, and he was with her. She wasn't by herself with Satan, eating the fruit and going, finding him and saying, hey, I found a great piece of fruit you haven't had yet. He's right there next to you. Failing to lead. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate too. And thus sin was brought into the world, and man fell. And we have to say that like a genetic disease passed from mother and father to child, all we who are the offspring of Adam and Eve, we are born fallen. We're born fallen. It's in our nature. We're born with a sinful nature. But we see we're not only guilty of, of the nature. The, what the nature has done in us is it's caused us to make this same guilty exchange that our foreparents made. We could easily read this and say, what's the big deal? All they did was eat a piece of fruit after all. But they didn't just eat a piece of fruit, brothers. They committed the betrayal of the ages, the crime of the centuries. This was a, a mutiny of the worst kind. This was more evil than Hitler and the Holocaust, more contagious, more devastating than AIDS, more disgusting than a rotting trash heap mixed with feces and STDs. A transaction of the vilest sort was undertaking, undertaken. The gift-giving, eternally divine one, he was exchanged. He was exchanged and replaced in the hearts of his creation for that which is fleeting. In order for us to understand what was going on behind the scenes, we must turn to Romans 1. I, I think most of you are probably still, still open in your Bibles to Romans 1. 
When a vehicle breaks down on the side of the road, the hood is popped open so as to take a look into the engine. When an, in, when, a, when an individual feels sick, they go to the doctor to learn the diagnosis causing the symptoms. We have to read the story of the fall of, fall of man. We know they broke down, but now we need to look into and at the heart and see what was happening at the heart level. And Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 4, that gives us the diagnosis. It tells us what was going on at the molecular level. Tells us what was going on under the hood. It says this. If your Bible's open to Romans 1, 21 through 24. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. What happened at the fall? Adam and Eve exchanged the glory of God for a lie. The word glory has to do with weight. In other words, we're, we're talking about the weightiness or the worth or the honor of God. The question is, how do you measure the weight? How do you measure the proportion, the diameter of that which is eternal? There's no scale which could register such a number. Nevertheless, Adam and Eve took that glory, the immortal glory of God, and they exchanged it for what? Text here, for images that looked like them, and like birds and animals and creeping things. What exactly does that mean? It means they worshipped, loved, and adored the creature over the creator. Really, it means their own desires over and against God's. They replaced the truth of God with a lie. They exchanged the creator for that which is created. They exchanged that which is infinite for that which is finite. Put, put simply, they replaced God with themselves. illustration I've often used, and I think we're safe because none of you are from this, this country. When a traveler wants to exchange his home currency for that of the country he is traveling in, he has to go to the bank. There are some countries whose currency have great international value. And there's other countries whose currency has value only at home. An example of this would be the British pound, which has great value in Uganda. The question is, does the Ugandan shilling have that same power in the UK? In effect, when an individual travels from the UK to Uganda, he must exchange a superior currency for that which is internationally considered to be inferior. But here we're not talking about God, are we? We're talking about, uh, about money. We're talking about God himself. So with this illustration in mind, imagine, if we may, taking God to the bank and saying, I'd like to exchange the true and living God for a lie. That's absurd. Yet the Apostle Paul says just that. These are the mechanics behind the fall. This is what was going on in the fall. You see, Adam and Eve were the original image bearers of God, but instead of being glory givers, they became glory stealers, glory thieves. Yehibr leba. Remember, the essence of sin is the failure to glorify God. God had created them in his own image for his own glory, and man took that image and he used it for his own glory. He put self in the place of God. This is where sin came from, and this is what lies at its heart. Every single time we sin, every single time, whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever, every time we sin, ultimately we're stealing glory from God. We were created to give him glory, and every time we fail to glorify him, we are stealing what rightfully belongs to him. And to our, our thievery, isn't simply reduced to events and actions in our lives. Rather, since the fall, it has become our natural inclination. 
What is our nature? We're glory thieves. We're glory thieves, according to Romans. And the problem only compounds. It's only more and more compounded. It only becomes more and more confused. Original sin, are you all familiar with that term, original sin? Original sin is a a term that can easily be confused and misunderstood. Often when people hear this term original sin, they think it's a reference back to the first time Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They say, I'm aware of original sin. It's when Adam and Eve ate that fruit. Thus, the original sin. That's not what we mean by this term. That's not what theologians mean when they use the term original sin. Original sin actually refers to the consequences that Adam's sin had upon all of mankind. It is saying Adam's sin is our sin and not just his. Wayne Grudem refers to original sin as inherited sin. He uses the term inherited sin. What is being communicated is that we are considered just as guilty as Adam, and we share in his guilt. Romans 5.12 puts it like this, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And again, Romans 5.18 puts it like this, one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men. One man's sin, in other words, led to the condemnation from God of all men. Romans 5.19 puts it like this, For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So what we have to say, what we, what we, our conclusion, our logical conclusion, has to be this. Every one of us in this room, before you ever sinned, you were a sinner. Can you see that in the text? Now, if you're anything like me, when I was a young man, perhaps your response to such a a, a statement would be this. Well, hold on. That's not fair. I wasn't there. I wasn't even born yet. How can I be held responsible for someone else's sinful actions? And I would say that's probably a very excellent question. One that should not be difficult to grasp here in our Ethiopian context. I mean answer your question with another question. When you leave your home and go out into public, who do you represent? Your parents? Your friends? Your neighborhood? Your city? Your ethnicity? It doesn't matter where you go, you are always aware of how your actions have an impact upon your community. But at an even greater level, we see this concept of representation with different nations, with different countries. The citizens of countries are held responsible for the actions of their leaders who function as representatives. If our leaders say we're going to war, the entire nation goes to war. None of you guys are up in the north fighting right now, but you're all members of a country at war. When Adam, the representative of our race and species, sinned, we all sinned in him. Original sin. So why is sin our most fundamental problem? Not only are we guilty of original sin, but every human being since Adam and Eve, every single human being born since Adam and Eve has been born with this sinful nature. And this sinful nature, it lashes out it lashes out in two different directions. One is upward, and the other is outward. Romans 1.18 sums up sin as ungodliness and unrighteousness. And when we talk about sin, it is important that we always keep that order in mind. First, ungodliness, seconded by unrighteousness. So we're, we're discussing how our sinful nature lashes out in two directions, upward and outward. Romans 1.18 sums up sin as ungodliness and unrighteousness. And when we talk about sin, it is important that we always keep this order. Ungodliness as the first, unrighteousness as the second. Upward sin is ungodliness, and it is sin against God. It's directed at God. 
outward sin is unrighteousness, and it primarily consists of sin against our fellow man. I think we can see this very clearly in the Ten Commandments, can't we? For example, the Ten Commandments can be summarized into two tables. The first table are the first four commandments, and they're with regards to our relationship with God. What's the first table? What's the first, what's the first table of the commandments? There you go, Sammy. I was looking to see if anybody's paying attention. It's the first four commandments with regards to our relationship with God. What's the second table? The following six commands, which have to do with how we relate to our fellow man. Love, love for God, and love for neighbor. Love of God and love of neighbor, it is, that's what's being commanded and the Ten Commandments. What's being commanded in the Ten Commandments? Boom. You guys are multitaskers. The breakdown of relationship comes, the, re, the breakdown of relationship between God and man, it's entirely due to sin, but it is also the cause for all of the brokenness we find in the world between humans and other humans. As quoted above earlier, in Romans 1, 23 and 25, we find declared that we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. This is the upward sin of ungodliness. And as a result, God gives us over to our desires. In the following verses, in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, each says that God gives us over to our sinful desires. And I quote, Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. For this reason, going on now to verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Going on now to 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not do. Three times, God gives us over. We're given up to the lusts of our heart, we're given up to dishonorable passions. And in the final state, we're given up to a debased mind. The image of two siblings fighting over a toy comes to my mind. The older sibling is trying to clean up, rightfully so, as his parents have told him to do, put the toys away. And while the younger is throwing a temper tantrum and trying to pull the, the toy away from his older brother with all of his might. Finally, the older sibling gets so annoyed that he simply releases his grip passively, passively letting go of the toy. And the force with which the young sibling had been pulling on it sends him flying across the room by his own strength. A man so passionately and so rebelliously sins against God, endeavoring to pull away from his lordship. And God responds saying, do you want your own way? Okay, have it. Have it. And he gives us up over to our lusts. He gives us up over to our passions. And he gives us up to a debased mind. In effect, he lets go. And the force with which we were sinning against him, pulling against him, the force with which we are sent in the opposite direction from him. Romans 1.29 goes on to say that the result of God giving us up over to a debased mind was that we were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Are you following the, are you following the order here? The ungodliness is now leading to unrighteousness. We see this in Romans 1.29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Remember, unrighteousness primarily consists of our outward sins directed at our fellow man. Romans 1, 29 through 31 goes on to describe what the unrighteousness looked like. So now we're, we're in our sins against our fellow man. Evil, covetousness, wanting what our others have. Malice, just bitterness, burning bitterness against others. They're full of envy. They want what others have. Murder, they think harsh thoughts towards each other. They hold on to anger, strife, arguing, deceit, lying, 
maliciousness. They are gossips. They talk about others behind their back. They're slanderers. Not only do they gossip behind their back, but they they say things that are bad about others so as to to destroy them in the minds of, of, of their friends and their family. They're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now we begin to see something of the consequence of our breakdown in relationship with God. It's a, it's a, it, it ends in a breakdown of relationship with one another. Our sin against God or our ungodliness is the explanation for our broken marriages, our broken families, racism, sexism, wars, abortions, abuse, injustice, lies, thievery, and the list goes on. Our sin, coming from our sinful nature, affects every level of our being. Our reasoning skills, our, our ability to comprehend our perception of what is right and what is wrong, the ordering of life, how we relate to one another, our actions and our attitudes, everything according to this text is fallen. See, this isn't the only place that that's stated. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 teaches the same thing. We have a debased mind according to Romans 1, 28. So we may say this. Every problem in the known universe has come either directly or indirectly in consequence to our sin against God. Every problem in the known universe has come either directly or indirectly in consequence to our sin against God. That is why we cannot call any of the other problems our primary problems. One of these effects of sin is our spiritual blindness. Perhaps the greatest implication of our blindness is that we do not see who it is that we are offending. You remember, at the core of Adam and Eve's sin was an, an idolatrous exchange. They wanted to take the place of God. So doing, they placed their desires and their happiness and their perspective over that of God's. And as a result of our sinful nature, we too naturally sin in the same way as Adam and Eve. We become guilty of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so even when we are considering a subject like this, like sin, there's a great temptation to look at it with regards to how it affects only me. But it was never ultimately about me. It's not even about us. What about the breakdown in our relationship? Sin is ultimately about God. Sin is our greatest problem because it offends a holy God. Vice versa. It's a fabulous question. It's outside of the scope of what we're talking right now, and it's outside of the scope of our context right now in Romans. But I do believe we'll get to it later on. And if we don't, feel free to, to ask later towards the end of the week. Paul, Paul right now in Romans is talking about how we have offended God um, and that God is wrathful and God is angry, right? But he hasn't really spent much time talking about how God is sovereign over that. So it's, it's a bit outside of, of our scope currently, but it's a great question. I would say this, though, that you could, you could hold loosely to the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. You could be an Arminian and still agree with everything we're talking about. This, this is not a Calvinist-Arminian debate, right? Our conversation right now is something that both George Whitfield and John Wesley Calvinist and an Arminian would have both nodded their head to and agreed, right? So, let's keep going. 
our problem. Our problem of sin makes God our problem. It is with him that we have to deal, and it is to him that we have to give an ultimate account on the last day. On the last day, we will all have to be able to give an answer for ourselves. We find this in Romans 1.18, we find this in Romans 2.1, and we find this in Romans 2.6. We are offensive to him. And so even if there were no other problems that stem from sin, no Satan, no worldliness, no broken marriages, no sexual immorality, we would still have to answer to God, brothers. Ultimately, sin is the primary problem because it destroys our relationship with him. God considers it as rebellion against himself. And because he is just, he promises to punish us for our sin. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages, the payment, the demo of sin is death. A rift has been created between God and man through sin, and even if we were to see Satan destroyed and worldliness eradicated, we would still be in need of being reconciled to God. And that rift, the separation, my friend, it gets wider and it gets wider and it gets wider every day. As we close out this lecture, let's consider a bit of personal application. We want to watch our life and our doctrines, brother. We're not just looking to talk about sin as some ethereal academic concept. But this hits very close to home for all of us. This is not something being dissected by a scientist that has ramifications for others, but which has no effect or consequences for us. This deeply affects each one of us. In the business world, it's not rare to experience quarterly audits. An outside auditor will come in and take stock of inventory. And those in charge, they are held responsible and they must give an account for their numbers. God's law, the Ten Commandments, they serve as something of a mirror which exposes us for who we actually are. But we cannot see ourselves accurately if we do not directly gaze into that law. So let us now put ourselves under the auditing eyes of God by ever so briefly looking at his wrath towards sin. To you, my students, I want to ask you a very important question. We've been talking about mankind's biggest problem. Let's make it personal. Have you seen God's wrath as ever being against you personally? More importantly, a follow-up question, my friend, I have to ask you this. We're here in the business of training pastors. I must ask you, is his wrath on you right now? Is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against you? If not, if your answer is no, God's wrath is not upon you then why? I don't need your answer. Just some takeaways. You must be able to answer that question if you want to be a gospel man. You can explain why God's wrath is not on you. It should be because you're a gospel man. Do you suppose that you will somehow escape the wrath of God by your piety, by being a part of this school, by reading sound theology. In other words, will you escape the wrath of God by your dead works? Is there something you have done or that you're putting forward and that you plan to do so as to get away from God's angry wrath? Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Have you ever, have you ever recognized yourself as a sinner deserving God's wrath? Not yesterday, not 10 years ago, but today. The sin from today. Your sins today. My sin as your professor today is enough to have the wrath of God be upon me. 
We're going to have individuals who attend our churches who have never smoked a cigarette in their life. We'll have individuals who have never committed fornication, never had sex. They're virgins. We're going to have married people who have never committed adultery. We'll have individuals who have never had a sip of alcohol in their life. Very sweet people, kind people, old grandmothers and old grandfathers. As for secular music, we'll have individuals who would never even dream of listening to it. When they're in the taxi and Teddy Afro comes on, they'll hum something else. So you young men who want to go into ministry... In your own estimation, according to God's word, is the wrath of God revealed from heaven against these types of individuals? Or when you go into ministry, will you simply be satisfied with an external conformity to some subcultural standard of holiness and let such self-deceived individuals slip into an eternity without Christ? problem for many a so-called pastor and the problem for many a so-called apostle, the problem for many a so-called Christian is not what they have not done, it's what they have failed to do. Churches have many people who have never loved the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength, and they may be clean, and they may be penitent, but they've failed to live for the glory of God. Like Adam and Eve and you and I, we have failed to live for him and for him, unto him, for his honor and for his pleasure. And in a word, most of us have never seen ourselves as ungodly. We've never taken note that our ungodliness is our biggest problem. But the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In Trinity Fellowship Pastors College, apart from the free grace of God revealed at the cross of Calvary, that includes each one of us. That has to be the entryway. If you haven't gone in through the wicked gate, you have to go back through the wicked gate. Christ and Christ alone. Romans 2, 5 through 6 informs us, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. This statement is said of the ungodly. And you might say, Michael, why are you telling us about this? We're already Christians. We're in the pastor's office. Why are you talking to us about all this? this isn't this a bit out of context? We want to go into Christian leadership. Friends, Paul wrote this book to Christians. Paul wrote these hard words, these hard sayings, to people who were already in the church. And you're going to be called to do the same. It behooves me to say these things. These people, it says, were storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed and he will render to everyone according to his works is a statement of the ungodly and what of the unrighteous perhaps it's true our church attenders have never murdered another or had an adulterous relationship perhaps that is true but according to Christ I have to push even further I have to push the envelope even further and I have to say is it actually True. Christ says in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable of judgment. And Christ, he applies that to the heart. And he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable of the hell of fire. Christ takes what is ordinarily considered an external act and he applies it to the heart. In so doing, he declares that in the eyes of God, a gossip or one who hates another, such, a, such an individual is a murderer indeed. The gossipers who murder individuals with their words in the mind of others, how will they escape the wrath of God? 
That's the grandpa and grandma in that church. That's, that's, that's the sisters who, who, who are so bitter. How will they escape the wrath of God? Those of us who are sexually pure, are we as pure in the mind of God as we make ourselves out to be? In Matthew 5, 27 through 28, Christ declares, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Perhaps you've never touched someone from the opposite sex whatsoever. Brothers, if you're married, you've never cheated on your spouse. But Christ says to simply lust after another woman is to make you an adulterer. The question becomes, when was the last time you addressed an attractive young lady on the street? You see her on the street and you notice their beauty. But you don't stop upon simply noticing their attractiveness. No, that's, that's, uh, that's just the beginning. You lust after her. Statistically speaking, Addis Ababa is rampant with pornography. Statistically speaking, some of you are still looking at pornography. Human beings are watching other human beings have sex on a computer or a, tele- or a television screen. It's addiction, my friend. It is taking place in every neighborhood, in every church in our city, and that by the most respectful members of society, leaders, educated individuals, clean on the outside, filthy on the inside. The image of God has been marred. It's been hurt. It's been ripped in us. We have become more debased than animals when we are watching our fellow man have sex on a television screen. How will you, how will I, and how will the people attending our churches, how will they escape the wrath of God? What shall they do to be right with God? Shall we clean ourselves up and try to live to God's holy standards, his command? As we saw this last Sunday, Isaiah 64, 6 declares, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. According to God's standard of righteousness, even our most righteous deeds, they're like an unclean thing. And this concept of filthy rags, it's it's as we saw in the original language. It means a, a garment of menstruation. So whatever it is that you and I might think is holy and good so as to make us acceptable in the sight of God, in reality, it's having the opposite effect. It makes us a stench to God. So you, my dear students, I ask you again, in your mind, what is the most holy thing a man or a woman could do? What is it that they could do to be accepted in his sight? Fasting? Praying? Giving all their money away? Sin sin stains every element of our existence. In these first few lectures, I've tried to convince you to the best of my ability that sin is man's most fundamental problem. It is the problem from which all others extend. Not just sin, as our churches define sin. Not not sin as many out there would define sin. Not merely our actions of drinking and or smoking, but our utter failure to be Godward in all that we are. Having seen what sin is and why it is our biggest problem, in our next two lectures, we're going to consider God's justice followed by God's judgment. A lot of hard things to stomach in a, in a, a class on the gospel centrality. That's exactly what Paul does. When Paul teaches the gospel, he can't do it without talking about how utterly sinful, how sinful sin really is. And he wants, he wants everybody to have a showdown with God. He wants everybody to come face to face with God see what they are. That's how Paul would make this argument. Comments? Questions? I know it's heavy stuff. I'm not being heavy just for heavy's sake. 
This is where Paul goes when he wants to be gospel-centered. This is not the gospel, right? I haven't told you the gospel yet. We've, we've been talking about our need for the gospel. We've been sowing a reason. Gospel means good news. All we've discussed so far is the bad news. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. 